Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films and filmmaking by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we take a different film and we look at that film, we look at some of the themes and ideas that it throws up. And at the moment, season three, we are going director by director for a month at a time. So we are deep in our Baz Luhrmann month at the moment. More on that later. Um, first, we like to start every episode in the same way with what else we've been watching during the week. So, Rob, what have you been looking at? Well, this is a bit of a story, but bear with me. I, as many people know, love uh, cult movies from the 80s and before, and I love VHS, and I love giant mods movies. And one of these alignments of these three things is a 1982 film called Q, or Q, The Winged Serpent. Essentially about a Quetzalcoatl, a giant winged lizard that terrorises New York in the 80s. This is a film where I saw the poster many, many years ago, and it became this bizarre mission of mine to find a VHS copy of this. And I've been looking for this for probably a decade. Um, I've been searching for trying to find a copy of this because like, you can get you know downloads you can probably get um, it on Netflix or some sort of streaming service but I, I like the tactile nature of the VHS um, especially for films of this era and I've been trying to hunt for it and I finally found one I finally found it a couple of months ago in a small video store and uh, last, not last night earlier this week I managed to sit down and watch it and it was everything I hoped it would be it is gloriously 80 gloriously camp with some amazing gore effects um, and some amazing camera work and editing tricks to make this kind of low budget horror um, work. Actors like uh, David Carradine and Michael, Mor- Mar- Michael Moriarty who you'll have heard of from other things directed by Larry Cohen who's gone on to do other movies in this genre. Horror movies and things like, I mean, the big one, things like Black Caesar or God Told Me To or It's Alive and things like that. So he, he's done many other movies but this is one of those movies I just kind of really wanted to uh, check out. And so it's been a kind of a culmination of a 10-year mission of mine to find this movie and watch it. And it was it was everything I wanted it to be. What about you, Sam? Well, I've been watching uh, something very different. <laughs> just about as far removed as you could possibly get. And um, I've been watching gritty, terribly realistic... Uh, Scandinavian police procedurals because the bridge is back on the BBC and it's the fourth series of this um, Brun in Swedish and Danish and known as the bridge in English it's very good it's um, the storylines are very good and the acting throughout is impressive but Sophia Helen is particularly good as the lead uh, because she is a female detective in a hyper-masculine world. So I have very much enjoyed watching The Bridge. Let's return to Bridge TV. Excellent. Once again, it, it remains sitting somewhere on my watch list. But uh, yeah, we haven't, we haven't got there yet. So guys, as Sam mentioned there, we are moving on with our Baz Luhrmann month our Baz Luhrmann season and we are moving on to his follow-up 
to last week's movie and probably i would say his breakout hit whilst the first film was certainly successful this was the one that catapulted him into the consciousness and onto a thousand tinted bedrooms and that is 1996's romeo and juliet Really titled Romeo plus Juliet in a modernistic style, the film is a retelling or a remix, as it were, of the Romeo and Juliet story. But rather than being set in Shakespearean times, it is now set in the feuding factions of a Hispanic and Caucasian family in in the beaches of America and California. It is crime-ridden and it is crime-filled. The language hasn't been updated from Shakespeare's original script. There is, I believe, some, and Sam can speak more to this, some editing and some rearranging, but the style and the metre is certainly still of Shakespeare's bent. Um, And it is a a film that is very much imprinted on at least my teenage years, Um, the the historic rise of Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes um, that drove these films as the young lovers. Were, were large parts of, of the zeitgeist of the era. Um, but it's to me, it does a sort of great work in kind of dating the story and uh, replacing it in a different time. Now, as we discussed in the past, Sam is an English scholar. He has doctorates and masters in English. He has read more books and plays than I've ever cared to, and I imagine he should have studied Shakespeare till the cows come home. So I'm intrigued, Sam, how you took this retelling, this remixing of, of the Bard's work. I... Very much enjoyed this film. As Rob has suggested, I have a certain familiarity with Shakespeare, and not only that, but I taught this play in the original only last year, so I showed them this version and another version several times over. So I've seen this film quite a lot. Um, And yes, I do enjoy it. It is... As Rom suggested, it's it's not updated the language as it's updated the setting, and I think that really works. Um, there is a little bit of well, there's a substantial amount of cutting, and certain things have been changed a bit, as you said. But basically, this is incredibly linguistically faithful. Um, <sighs> I've written down a note to myself at the start of this that I know this story enough and have seen this film enough to know the narrative that goes on. And this time I was really sitting down to watch it as a film. And I don't, I mean, said before in other places, probably not here, that I don't really rate this play. And it's not one of my favourites and it, I don't think it's particularly good I don't think it's a very good example of, of what Shakespeare was capable of doing and it was the beginning of his career um, having said all that I think the film is great I think that Leonardo DiCaprio is just the right age to be a stubborn stupid love struck idiot of a sort of 
18 to 22 year old as he is here um, and I think Claire Danes while okay she could be a bit younger based on what the play is it, I kind of, that sort of would turn into a different film so she is she's 16, 17 here and she's very good at that I think Mary Mogley is very good as the nurse and Pete Postlethwaite, absolutely brilliant as the friar. And there's some good supporting work from other people, I think. But I think those four are the main characters. Um, I, I just think this is very clever. This The, the updating doesn't feel... Some Shakespeare updated adaptations can feel a bit sort of shoehorned. And you think, well... Okay, you're doing this to be clever, but there's nothing very, very interesting you're doing with the text here. And I think this was, it, it, it felt like this is what the play should be. I think that's the biggest compliment I can play Baz Luhrmann. He, hmm. he is doing exactly what the play needs here. I think it's I, I come at it from a different point of view. Is that. I've never been an English scholar. Sam was there in our high school years and know that I never really did well in English. And I've always not got on with Shakespeare. I found him very dense and very hard to understand as a playwright. And he always fell into the same category we discussed elsewhere as being important, but not good. Um, it, it, was, it was kind of like he invented a lot of things and, he's, and he, his influence is, is weighty and massive on the world of almost all storytelling to this day. But the, to me, it didn't, it didn't enjoy any of the plays I studied at school. I didn't enjoy the performance I saw of it. I didn't enjoy the text I read of it. But this film somehow, whilst it still has the same denseness of, of language, it works. It, to me, it feels alive in a way that the texts never have. And it feels, not relevant, but it just feels timely. And it feels, even to this day, even you know, who we are looking at it back, you know, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, it still feels weirdly prescient and weirdly sort of involved. And it just, this to me, is one of those films that kind of showed me what Shakespeare can be. It took away all the trappings of the, you know, the bizarre stage directions and the pomp and circumstance that went along with studying these texts at school. But it stripped it back and, and suddenly being able to remove all of those elements, um, for me, made it something I could connect with. And Sam will laugh because this is someone I bring up quite a lot. But for me, the, the, it was almost a Brechtian telling of this story. Um, to me, certainly allowed me to connect with it in a way I never had prior to this. Those who don't know, um, Brecht was a theatre practitioner, and one of his um, big sort of ideas was a separation of text and story in many ways. For, for I'm kind of butchering it here, but essentially one of his, his mechanics was to explain at the start the story. And once you knew where it was going and you knew what was happening, and you could and then separate yourself from that and investigate the themes and ideas it presented it's very kind of didactic advice. And in this, you've got the, literally the opening monologue, which is almost given twice, but given once by a sort of newscaster, tells you the whole story. Tells you the whole story in a couple of paragraphs. And somehow that this kind of Brechtian separation and, and removal of my ability to need to get through a dense sort of story structure allowed me to connect with the language and the stories I never had before. As someone who teaches Shakespeare now, and has experienced a lot of pushback against it. And certainly when we were growing up, it was 
not everyone at all who got on with Shakespeare. Lots of people had the same reaction that you did. I think this is in so often down to the way it's taught. And I think what Baz Luhrmann is doing here is showing you how interesting and enjoyable and mm. relevant Shakespeare is when it's presented in the right way. Because that prologue is lifted entirely from the play. And you're, you're absolutely right that, that your response to then is, well, this is Bad Lemon doing something Brechtian, something completely yes. original and something new. And y- you can understand that because that's how how you would you would expect to to view this film but this is mm. what shakespeare was doing and this is what well, f- 3 400 years before brecht this is him presenting you with the story right at the beginning of the play and people just don't give shakespeare credit for that for f- for doing something that interesting yes. with what he was doing because all the people, and I'm not saying you people, I'm saying those who study the play and even those who teach teach his plays, it, it just sort of so bound up in how, how, like you said, the pomp and circumstance and how weighty the language is and how important it is that you engage with these characters. Okay, it is, it is important to a certain extent, but mm-hmm. what's really joyful and engaging about it is just how playful he was and i said i said at the beginning how this is i don't think it's very good and it's something from the beginning of his career but one of the things that's very good about this play is that you see him at the beginning of his play, his career playing around with things there's something something boring about the language as it takes place throughout but um romeo's Mm. use of the sonnet gets better as the play goes on and what you can see is a dramatist grappling with the idea that there is a certain character development that he's expressing through the form that he uses and that's what he was doing at the beginning of his career was just trying these things out and they don't always work and sometimes their stories nicked from other places and I'm putting the footnotes all the different places Shakespeare nick the stories from mm. but he, that, that that's what I think about about this play this this telling of the play in general and it, it spoke to me and it was invigorating to me but I think and I'm, I'm glad that you found the same and I, I think part of the reason it does is that this this sort of thing has been badly taught by our teachers and by teachers of our generation and no one really seems to know how to deal with Shakespeare because he's this big important figure and he's had all these influences anyway also I could talk about Shakespeare for hours I will stop one little diversion before we move on away from being taught Shakespeare for me the one thing I always came up against was the idea that Shakespeare was good and important but mm. at no point did anyone explain to me why he was good no it was just like Shakespeare's great, and I'm, well, I'm not seeing it. And and you, you touched on it there a little bit. It's one thing that I really want to sort of pull out as a, as a kind of like a uh, sort of a, as an avatar or, or, a, or a moment to it. You mentioned silliness, the silliness of of the text, mm. and that is not something that I've ever got from reading Shakespeare's texts because they're so 
Shakespearean, and a Shakespearean actor is a certain sort of actor. You're thinking, you know, Brian Blessed, you're thinking Patrick Stewart, you're thinking that kind of Shakespearean actor. Whereas this, the framing of this film allowed, especially sort of the Makusha character and like Romeo's sort of brothers and cousins, it allowed them to be silly. And suddenly mm. all these puns that are really dense if you don't understand sort of the, the language of the time suddenly become obvious you know the, the, the you know, his sword becomes a sort of a phallic symbol and the jokes around it, him him drawing his sword and that kind of thing and all these jokes that i just did not get when i read it as a text suddenly became clear because mm. of that modernization that kind of and you know i think there's, there's certainly there's certainly power in the original scripts because i don't think they'd still be performed um in the same way that they are if there wasn't power in them but certainly for me for someone who isn't an english scholar this was at at the time, I mean, obviously since then we've grown in, but at the time it was really kind of like, oh, I suddenly get this. Mm. And you get that not all, like Shakespeare is serious and important, but it's also funny. And it's also silly. And it's also this kind of rambunctious lads having banter together kind of thing. You know, this is Shakespearean banter between friends. And it drives the story forward and it has character beats and all that kind of thing. And the film certainly comes with the pathos and some of the social more adult actors in it people like you know Maria Margolis and the sort of the the Capulet and Montague sort of patriarchs they bring weight and gravitas to this film certainly but there's also this fun and frivolity and the character of Juliet you know like you're both but Juliet and Romeo are idiots you're supposed to think they're idiots Hmm. you're supposed to think that these are children almost screaming at the screen going what are you doing it's a tragedy for a reason Hmm. And in this, like, yes, you're like, you know, they're annoying and they're childlike, you know, just, you know, talk to each other, all this sort of things. But I really suddenly got all these things. And all these things that were just were too hidden in the text for me and too hidden in the traditional Shakespeare presentations I'd seen opened up to me. Um, and I suddenly started engaging with Shakespeare. I mean, obviously, we are, we are in the height of that sort of Shakespearean updating um, and that kind of classic literature. We've got things like 10 Things I Hate About You. We've got... Um, She's all that, and all this kind of like high school reimagining, and this kind of overlaps that genre, but it isn't the same thing. Um, but for me, it, I can't think of a film like this, and I wish there were more films like this. Hmm. I'm, I, I've gone on record in the past of not being the biggest fan of the the British TV's obsession with period dramas and this sort of bizarre tunnel vision we have with reproducing um, this kind of. Edwardian period in our history and our Victorian period in our history and like I, I personally have no interest in those stories but if they were to take these you know, if they were to do a Shakespeare season of these kind of movies I'd be all over it because also I think one of the things that like talking to you and talking to people since then is that Shakespeare's very in his time pop culture driven he was pop culture Hmm. You know, he was he was you know, that the, he was the pit that the, the, there were there were jokes about local people. It was a pop culture thing, and this updates that into like not modern because twenty years old, but at the time the pop culture. So it still becomes this pop culture story. You know, we have the kind of the fetishization of religious symbols. They become a lifestyle choice as much as they are a religious choice. And you have this whole kind of the, the the culture around it, the guns, the cars, and all this kind of you know the, the, even in the editing, the sort of the smash cuts, the the modernist stories, the modernist songs you've got through it. But also, I love the, the sort of the balancing because you know, this film that's like a modernization of an old story, and then you cut you get, get these scenes in the church when you've got these this beautiful choir taking modern songs and making these kind of choral arrangements of them. 
Mm. Um, and I love that balance of there. Like, well, this this is old made to new, but he is new made old as well. I I did I something I love about this film beyond anything to do with Shakespeare is just the way it uses music as well. This is one of the and you've mentioned Pop Gosha there, it's one of the greatest pop soundtracks ever. Mm, it's just absolutely. amazing the music that it uses. And I don't know what I don't know whether that's me reminiscing about what music was like in the late nineties because that was a time for me that music was important or it's just that it uses music so cleverly. There's a whole podcast about that we could do about the soundtrack out there but I do think there was this kind of this give and take that with 90s we got a lot of these kind of song driven soundtracks like this um, and a lot of the 90s movies are driven by songs um, and now I think we, we, we shifted more towards like a score based movie mm. and a lot of movies and now I think with the inclusion of things like Guardians of the Galaxy Thor Ragnarok and some of the Marvel films we're drifting back towards this idea of having songs in the movie um, and I like that. I mean, I mean, you're right. I think this is a brilliant soundtrack. And I think they use song brilliantly in it. You know, you have this kind of the, the, the scene in which they take ecstasy and a kind of explosion of colour and sound and song. And you have Mercutio dancing in, in drag um, at the party, which is like this sort of Buster Berkeley style classic Hollywood manu- um, sort of dance routine, um, but done by a, a black man in drag in, in this film. And the songs out there, are sort of, you know, that they have, they express that kind of teenage infatuation we've all had. I think that you know we've talked a lot about the text here, um, and we, we're really kind of we're running a bit out of time. But I wanted to briefly touch on this kind of the song and the visuals of this film. The film uses, you know, it uses the sort of the shots of newspapers. It uses shots of TVs. It uses these you know repeated motifs of um, helicopters and these smash cuts, and it uses all these kind of things we saw last week in. Um, Strictly Ballroom this playing with style and the form of movies he brings it to full effect here and it's kind of not, it's not even a pop culture it's a pop culture explosion you know this reworking of, of, of how things should be but he brings that kind of technical skill to it as well um, and you have repeated motifs of that his head being dunked into water and seeing things through that and fireworks um, and all this kind of thing and it just for me I think it's a technical masterpiece of how they put this film together as well as the triumph of, of Shakespeare's text being modernised I did it, I agree with you and I just wanted to add to this I, I've obviously picked up things from you because I was looking at the visual spectacle thinking about the colours and the way they really the, so the party scene with and Makusho and next <laughs> is almost too bright and too vibrant. Mm. It's almost, well, I can't deal with this. And then the love scenes, you have warm and inviting colours. And then you have the scene after Makusho's death, which is so black. It's so dark. Mm. Everything goes dark on screen. It's just this, this really, it's just, you understand how how clever Lerman is with, with manipulating images, visuals on screen. I think one thing he does play around with, just a little taste of that, is it's time. And in the party particularly, there's a there's certain shot that's sped up. And they're kind of almost like hurdy-gurdy style. The camera's moving so much, they're moving, there's flashes, it's all so chaotic. Um, and everything's sped up. And you feel that kind of like almost overload of visual information coming in. 
And then you have it almost cuts straight away to this shot in which you've got Romeo and Juliet looking at each other through this this um, fish tank, and it's slightly slowed down. The shot itself is just slightly slowed down, and suddenly it's that moment of like just time stops. You just suddenly see the love of your life, and it's ethereal, and her head, her hair's swimming in the water, and it's all just slowed down. And it's the the way he uses time to tell things. Um, you know, the, the early shootout between the two teams. There are slow mo shots. There are there are speed up speed up shots there, and he uses it in that kind of way in which, as a real life person, you experience stuff. We don't experience time in linear fashion. You know, it's some some days last forever and some years fly by, and this film does that same sort of thing. An evening like this party, which is going to be amazing, can fly by, hmm. and then later on, you've got when he's out, out in exile, the shots there that actual cuts are longer. They're slower cuts. Because he's bored, he's sitting around doing nothing. It's a different lifestyle, and he uses that kind of that editing rhythm and that's sort of the speed of the the visual speed to tell things about what's going on and evoke these emotions in us. That I think if you stuck to traditional form making, film formatic form, you just miss. So Sam, do you have some recommendations for us after this movie? I do. One is. Um Raised to an actor involved in this, and one is sort of more tangentially connected. The actor connection is someone I mentioned right at the beginning as being a great acting performance in this, and then we didn't really touch on him very much. And I've I've admired this actor's work for some time. He sadly passed away quite recently. Um, Rob knows how much I like the work of Pete Postlethwaite. So I just wanted to give a shout out for another great film of the mid-1990s starring Pete Postlethwaite. It's The Usual Suspect. It doesn't need much here. I mean, I'd probably recommend this once every couple of months. It's just a great film. My second is... uh, Another film with a great 90s soundtrack, although very different uh, thematically. This is Rome and Juliet's a very poppy soundtrack. And this, uh, from 1995, the year before, Dangerous Minds is a very hip-hop, R&B, rap-influenced soundtrack. Um, But this is another film that... It's very visually impressive and musically impressive as well, even though you don't want to stop and think about the narrative for too long because there are questionable things done involving the teaching profession. Uh, But Dangerous Minds is another great um, mid-90s classic. How about you, Rob? Excellent. I've got two, one thematic and one actor base i'll do actor base first of all now he was a bit of a minor part in this but he's an actor who I've, I've liked a lot in various things um and he played uh, captain prince in Romeo and juliet and whilst he hasn't got a lot of scenes he's certainly a presence to the movie and he certainly has kind of a i mentioned that grand gravitas and that kind of mixture of authoritarianism and deep sadness he portrays in terms of his role he's played by an actor called von d curtis hall um, and he's been in lots of things over the years, but one of the most interesting films he's been in, and it's an interesting film for various reasons, is a film from 1996 called Broken Arrow. This is a action movie from John Woo, and it's a very odd one because it stars Travolta and uh, Slater, and both of them at this point were kind of just over the over the hill of their popularity. Travolta hadn't been, you know, 
was still in kind of the the, the, the um, Tarantino years, and Slate had just kind of come off the back of his big sort of movies. And so it's a very odd little movie. You've got two big stars who aren't quite big stars anymore. Um, and then you've got John Woo, who is you know, tied into a contract in America to make American action movies and doesn't really want to. And it's it's a fascinatingly weird movie about terrorists stealing nuclear um, nuclear warheads um, and pilots and the rangers who try and get it back. It is in many ways a normal action movie, um, but he plays uh, one of the military men in it and is very good in that in the same kind of way. Um, and it's just it's, you know, it's it's well worth seeing for just the weirdness of an eighty nineties action movie um, and these kind of two stars who are kind of on the wane and kind of on the rise at the same time. My second recommendation is my thematic one. It's my one that uh, it's a, this is a hard film to do thematic from because it's such out there in terms of its style and its visuals. But the film that I'm sure I've plugged it before, and I'm sure I'll plug it again, um, is the 2007 film Across the Universe. This is the Beatles musical movie. So taking songs from, from the Beatles um, and making a story out of them. It is is a long film, and it really hasn't got a lot of sort of press and i feel it needs a bit more kind of cheerleading but it is visually outstanding the way they travel through sort of the 60s and 70s uh, through vietnam and through sort of stonewall and that kind of things in in new york and all of these kind of stuff and it's a portrait of americana as well as surrealism and quite mind-bending visuals in interesting ways so i do appreciate that raymond Juliet wasn't musical but we, we've, we've harked about his musical score and this obviously has an equally brilliant score so if you haven't seen Christian Universe, I urge you to try and find it. It's such a odd little movie that is so much better than the uh, the press it received. Um, so yeah, that's 2007's Across the Universe. Great. Next week, everyone, we continue our Baz Luhrmann season with his... I'm not going to call it a classic. Rob has championed it, and we will see uh, what we have to say about it next week his 2008 film Australia. Until then you can find us both on at Prestige Podcast on Twitter. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju. You find me at life underscore academic. stage and we are all merely role players join members of blackshaw theater company as they try on all the many roles there are to play you are blackshaw theater nobody else knows you're also investigators of inexplicable happenings (laughs) deputies of federal law enforcement master thieves and con artists hooray (laughs) merely role players where theatrical people play role-playing games new episodes every week new stories and new genres every season Just search for Merely Role Players wherever you find podcasts.